David, Apple and Google took the social network parlor out of their app stores, citing what the New York Times says is too many posts that encouraged violence and crime. Parlor also lost its Amazon web hosting. What I want to know is, do you have any words to say in memory of Parlor? At least as a mainstreamish thing. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that I don't. I'm pretty sure you have to like enter your phone number to to sign up, even to just browse. So I I, I can't say that I've ever spent any time browsing around on it. Uh, There's not at the mass man is not on Parlor. <laughs> Somebody's gonna start that today, just 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 in honor of this podcast. Um. No, no. I mean, come on. These like nominally conservative, quote unquote, free speech platforms. It's the same thing one after the other, right? It's like you just it's like it's like every time I throw a party, I don't know what happens. All these assholes show up. <laughs> like Maybe you got to stop throwing a party. Maybe it's your maybe the problems with you, man. Yeah, I feel this has been a really slow moving train of everybody's going to parlor. I mean, haven't haven't we been doing this for a while? Yeah. I got meet me. Didn't didn't Larry the Cable Guy have a meet me on Parlor tweet <laughs> at one point? I'm sure, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there have been a couple of these. It was all Gab for a while, and which is still around, I guess. And 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 uh, but it wasn't sufficiently free speech free speechy for the true believers who believe that you know Nazi catchphrases are important to a to a balanced uh, democracy. Uh, listen. They can figure it out on their own, I guess. I mean, it's not a... Someone pointed this out online. So for anyone that you hear that is is alarmed that these oligarchical tech monoliths are squelching the free speech... Uh, of of uh, Parler and its users and some Orwellian, well, well, we'll get back to Orwellian things later in the show, but in some Orwellian move, um, as uh, I want to quote Kevin W. Glass from on Twitter here, who said, who points out that the National Enquirer, which is a pro-Trump tabloid that explicitly worked to get Trump elected and also published Jeff Bezos' explicit text messages, is still hosted by Amazon Web Services. So this is not an ideological witch hunt. This is uh, you know, American corporations actually observing social responsibility at a really important moment in our country's history. I I feel the same way about the word Orwellian as I do about the phrase "bad luck." <laughs> do you? If I see anybody using either of those, off to parlor with you. Coming up on today's show, we inspect the arguments for Donald Trump's impeachment. ESPN's Don Van Natta Jr. stops by to talk about the Manti Teo hoax, and at the very end of the show. A special announcement about Thursday's episode of this here podcast. You're going to want to hear that. All that and more in the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, it's impeachment week again. And this morning, House Democrats put forth an article of impeachment against Donald Trump for, quote, inciting violence 
against the government of the United States, a reference, of course, to the pro-Trump forces terrorizing the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday. The Democrats' message is that if Mike Pence doesn't invoke the 25th Amendment that allows him and the cabinet to remove Trump, and Mike Pence is not going to do that, by the way, then Democrats will proceed with impeachment. Steny Hoyer, number two Democrat in the House, says there may be a vote as soon as Wednesday. So here we are, once again, at the doorstep of impeaching Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I feel like throughout President Trump's term, and certainly by the time that they got to impeachment last time, there was a question of urgency. And now there's a sort of almost artificial urgency of the end of his of the term approaching. Um, I mean, that's sort of adding up to making it seem like Congress is operating at a normal human speed as opposed to the snail's pace that it usually seems like this kind of, you know, round robin of motions and postponements and, you know, long lunch breaks seem to always take. Um, But this is a really urgent, I mean, all that aside, this is a really, really, this is a moment of great urgency. I mean, really, really great urgency. Uh, This is... um, I think any any moment wasted st- talking about uh, how long it's going to take and what burden it might place on the Biden presidency is really, really beside the point. Yeah. Well, that's what I kind of what I wanted to talk to you about, because I think the case for impeachment is pretty straightforward. It was basically broadcast on television last week mm-hmm. and has been shown in videos that, by the way, just got scarier and scarier yeah. as the week went on. Yeah, it's not like sometimes you watch like whatever you go down some weird rabbit hole on YouTube and and you start watching like people falling off of pogo sticks and you end up watching people potentially dying in car wrecks and you do realize that you as a human being get weathered to this stuff. But this was not a case like that. It got more and more frightening as a human, as an American, every every time. And for that reason, I thought the case against impeachment that a number of Republicans are making on the Hill and outside the Hill was worth us spending a few moments on. Yeah. I found three reasons that have been given, and I'll give you them in order. Number one goes like this. If you impeach Donald Trump right now, you're going to make Donald Trump's supporters mad. Kevin Brady, Republican representative Mm -hmm. from Texas, said people calling for impeachment, quote, are themselves engaging in intemperate and inflammatory language and calling for action that is equally irresponsible, equally irresponsible, and could well incite further violence. So what do we think about that? So, I mean, I think in all of these cases, it's really, I mean, this isn't, you don't always do this, but you can really take these, I mean, take almost all these instances to the logical extreme now, right? I mean, uh, these are literal insurrectionists, right? I mean, they're a lot, they're heavily white supremacist law. They are uh, pro-totalitarianism. I mean, say whatever you want to say, that, but, but they, they literally stormed the Capitol. In, uh, to try to take over the government. I'm not really worried about them being mad. And if it's a messaging issue that people see themselves in these terrorists, uh, then that's part of your job as a politician, not to draw, not, not, not to create a fine line for yourself and others to walk, but to build the wall. I mean, to, <laughs> sorry for the <laughs> pun, no pun intended, to, to, to delineate very clearly between what is it, what is acceptable for a citizen of the United States of America to do and what is terrorist behavior, right? You don't need to apologize to the potential terrorists out there. Yeah. And the whole reasoning here, right, is that the president incited people to do violent things. Mm-hmm. But if you hold that president responsible, then these people or some other people may do more violent things. Mm-hmm. That, that seems absurd. And, and of course, people have been making the case all week that if you don't hold the president responsible, people will say, oh, I've got a green light. I can get away with this. We can do absurd and horrible stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And it'll be OK. Yeah. It, it really strikes me as this kind of political tactic we see all the time. We've seen it a ton during the Trump era. I'm sure we can find examples uh, going to the other party as well. But somebody does something really bad and then the other side has a reaction to it Mm -hmm. and the people from side number one say, Oh, 
oh, you've gone over the line in your reaction. If mm-hmm. only you'd had a more measured reaction. Yeah. This would be such a problem. And listen, that that's a... <sighs> That has been a functional, if not successful, political tactic over and over again over the past four years. I mean, the the fact that you're bringing it up, the fact that we're here, all that is proof for it. But again, this is like a unique, this is a a very different situation or at least a singular situation, right? I mean, it's a thing we can be slightly more clear right about this. This won't help unify us shtick. Is runs parallel to the sort of like, it runs parallel to like the the comparing losing your book. We'll get to Josh Hawley later, but like, Trump losing his Twitter account equals 1984 shtick runs those two things run parallel, right? Because, well, obviously they're disingenuous, but they're also totally empty because you have to ask, is there any time that it would be okay? If Josh Hawley walked into his publisher's office and took a shit on the floor, if he walked in and planted a bomb, would it be okay to cancel his book then? Yeah. The, the answer is obviously yes. Right. If, if, uh, if, 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 if Josh Hawley or, or Ted Cruz or, or, uh, it, it, what if, if if President Trump murdered Mike Pence in front of television cameras, would it be okay to take him out of, to remove him from office? If the answer is yes, right, then if you say yes to that, then what you're saying is what Trump did did not rise to the level of being problematic, right? Because obviously there are, there obviously it's not just a matter a matter of divisiveness to try to impeach the president right now. It's a matter of him doing something that that warrants impeachment that is in fact impeachable yeah yeah i i i you do you you do get into this weird zone right where it's like hypothetical zone but what about this but what about this no 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 let's just do the let's just talk about the thing that was on tv yeah like let's we're 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 not inferring anything here i i do find that very weird reason number two david look donald trump is going to be president for a week and a half longer Mm mm-hmm and then Biden's going to be in office, sworn in on January 20th, next Wednesday. So why don't we just move on? <laughs> I, I think I think that it's I I'm mean, looking I said, for reasons. I mean, I said, I, <laughs> I, what I, I said it before. I said it before to 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 indulge that line of argument. And, and, and by the way, obviously, that's a line of argument that is, frankly, more persuasive or intended to be more persuasive to Democrats who are out there. Um. But to but to indulge in that line of uh, of argument is is um to do exactly what I was just talking about Republicans doing five seconds ago. It's to pretend that there's something more important than the actual gravity of what happened last week, right? Is it mm-hmm. pretend that there is like degrees to this in which it would be overlooked? If Donald Trump had himself led the charge with a musket in one hand and a machete in the other and chopped some people up along the way. I don't think we'd be having this conversation right now, right? It would David, be okay. really would, setting the world record for violent hypotheticals. I'm on this just podcast, saying, okay. if it's okay, like, like you, what, what, if you say, if you say, <laughs> no, it's gonna, this is gonna hamstring Biden's first month, then you're saying that what Trump did is okay. It's really that simple. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, and and here's the other problem with the let's move on argument. Are we sure Donald Trump has moved on? Are we sure that the last week and a half of his presidency is just going to be Donald Trump being quiet and away from everything and not no. inciting more things? That no. that seems like an awfully big assumption on all of our collective parts. I I also my mind when I hear this went back to the whole time to move on thing we heard after the Great Recession, after the Iraq War. Remember that? Mm-hmm. You know what? There are people here that potentially should face the consequences of their actions. But you know what? It would be divisive. It would be, it would get in the way of all these other things we want to do. You know who channeled the the lingering distaste that was in the world after we moved on in those two cases? Donald Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Who, who cares if he was insincere about his you know, quote unquote, opposition to the Iraq war that, you know, when he was saying rich people can do whatever they want in this country, he understood those feelings were out in the country. He channeled them. He channeled them all the way to the White House. Seems relevant in this discussion. All right. Reason number three, not to impeach Donald Trump, David, by trying to do a quickie impeachment in the week and a half that Trump has left in office, Democrats are simply moving too fast. There's a group of Republican House members who did not vote to overturn the election the other day. They sent a letter to Biden urging him to to oppose impeachment. 
A line from that letter reads, a presidential impeachment should not occur in the heat of the moment, but rather after great deliberation. Philip Klein, writer in the Washington Examiner, makes a version of this argument too. Basically, what he says is, look, if you slow down and don't regard the end of Donald Trump's presidency as your shot clock buzzer here, Mm -hmm. you can bring in potentially other impeachable behavior like that call Trump made to the Georgia Secretary of State the other day. Big bombshell that was in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that the administration pressured the U.S. attorney in Georgia to resign because he wouldn't chase after their ridiculous voter fraud rumors. Why, he asked, don't you slow down and do a more complete version that brings all those things in? That's the third argument. It seems to me, though, that that's not mutually exclusive to addressing the real urgency of this moment, right? I mean, I'm not sure that we need any more information to... We shouldn't need any more more information to impeach the impeach the president now. And I think anything else that needs to be investigated can that can I mean those investigations can certainly take place outside of the impeachment process. But I mean, of all of these, of, I mean, of all of these rationales, I guess that one's the most persuasive. But but like, hey, hey, slow down, just does not seem like particularly compelling right now. It, it seems a lot. I mean, you're talking about. You made a shot clock reference before. This really feels like you're trying to just run it out, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And and it's just I keep coming back to the to the image was we saw and and to the point you made about what happened without with no there's no argument about what happened. If you don't impeach a president for this, then what do you impeach the president for? Mm-hmm. What could you possibly pick? And I'm not going to let David make any more hypotheticals here because we would <laughs> whoa, also whoa, impeach whoa, for those things ahead. you were talking about, but. <laughs> What else would you do it for? And and urgency and timeline is so interesting to me because isn't the last like couple of weeks of your presidency when you would try to steal the election? <laughs> that happens now, right? That it wouldn't happen like the previous May. <laughs> you're you're sort of saying, well, you know, there was this thing, but it was right at the end. Well, that's when leaders try to stay in power when they're about to be shoved out of power, or that's when they incite people to take actions that in some hypothetical universe would result in them staying in power. Mm-hmm. So that's also weird to me to say, well, it's at the end. Well, yeah, that's when people try to try to stay on beyond when they're supposed to stay on. Yeah. I don't know. Do we want to spend a second on Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley? Well, I think we should, if for no other reason than they're, they're still going to be in office in two weeks, no matter what. Oh, well, they, they, they may oh, wait, well this still be in office. All, this isn't like an NBA trade where there's like a throw in. <laughs> We're going to make the salaries match by putting Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in. Oh, man. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, it, it, there are there have been calls for both of them to step down, which all kind of like, you know, goes to the point that the uh, response to their involvement in um, the attack on the Capitol uh at least their spiritual involvement has been um, surprisingly full-throated, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not hard to find sort of departing Republican <laughs> Congress people that are that are willing to say negative things about these two people. But I think there's a lot of people co-signing this right now, right? And it's easy. I mean, yeah. Bob Corker, uh, former Republican Senator Bob Corker said, uh, which I think is this is important when it goes to stating what's true. I keep coming back to this. Everyone can see through and look, understand they're running for president. They think they're getting a pass and they can be popular with this base and there's no harm done. But there was harm done. That's important. Uh, uh, Joe Manchin said, there's no way they cannot be complicit in this. I don't know how you can live with yourself right now knowing that people lost their lives. Um, they're, ga- they're losing supporters, right? Josh Hawley's lost uh, his former patron, uh, John, Senator John Danforth of, of Missouri, or former mm-hmm. senator. Uh, and, and who called his support of Holly the biggest mistake he's ever made. Uh, his top donor said he should be cens- censured. Cruz's uh, like right-hand guy, Chad Sweet, uh, fundraiser and everything else, has cut ties with him. And the financial implications don't stop there. There's, uh, I mean, all uh, any number of outlets have reported that uh, Marriott International, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, AT&T, all of these are companies that have either 
specifically stopped donating to these people or basic or, or to Republicans or basically said, we're not going to we're going to stop donating altogether and take a fresh look at who we're giving money to, uh, which is a kind of a nice way to say we're not giving money to people that incite insurrections anymore. Um, and, you know, if any of these things ma- don't matter, if you can point to any of these things, the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, came down on both of them. And and um, we've talked before on this show about how local newspaper presidential endor- endorsements might not be as valuable now as they were at some point in the past. But their role in uh, tis- tisking their local seditionists has become more important than ever. Uh, <laughs> the Kansas City Star called Holly a man who, having so disgraced his office and our state, must either resign or be removed from the U.S. Senate. And the Houston Chronicle called for Ted Cruz to resign also, saying your lies cost lives. Um, and it's a real thing. Sheldon Whitehouse said that uh, that the Ethics Committee must consider their removal. Um, and this was a kind of a cool, oh, interesting little side note. Jake Sherman, who's at Punchbowl now, said that senior Democrats, see, this is in a tweet, oh, I guess it was in his morning newsletter also, said that Senate Democrats are talking about cutting off any Republican who voted against certifying the election. And that means no bills with them, no letters with them, blocking their initiatives and committee, et cetera. Um, I mean, that seems like there, there's, this is more, this is more flack than I expected those two to take based on history. And isn't part of that go to something that McKay Coppins brought up with us last week is that mm-hmm. people in Congress cannot stand Ted Cruz and yeah. Josh Hawley, even Republicans, maybe especially Republicans, because they have to work with them all the time. Yeah. And that so there's just no there's no reservoir of goodwill here for these people. I mean, look, and again, I don't want to get away from the, the central fact. People storm the Capitol. Then you walk back into the Senate chamber and still vote to overturn the will of the voters. Yeah. That's what they did. But when you see this almost gleeful reaction, wide ranging reaction, I think it has something to do with the fact that people just don't like Holly and Cruz. And they started with that point. And now they're like, wow, look what these guys have done. This is even worse than I thought. I think that was part of it. I yeah. will ask you this though. You just get you gave us a whole great rundown there. Do we still believe that this there are going to be consequences for these two people outside of maybe it endangers their 2024 presidential bid? Weirdly, I think that the presidential bid is maybe the least impacted. As long as they stay in office or sort of, you know, stage manage the next several years correctly, because as we saw with President Trump, you don't have, I mean, you can be the person that all the other establishment Republicans talk shit about and still get the nomination, right? But I guess my question is if they are setting aside their removal from the ethics committee or, you know, in any, by any other means, um, I guess I'd be interested to know if they were given some sort of lesser punishment, if they were censured or, you know, t- removed from committees and blah, blah, blah. Is, is, a, is a public censure damaging enough that they would consider stepping down before that came to pass. I don't think right? so. I don't think so. So if you're it's gonna not... You're going to leave the Senate? Huh? You're going to leave the Senate? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I agree. I just, I mean, it's a, but it's it's interesting. It's it's it, it's interesting to think about, like, what a, what the campaign looks like in four years. I, I don't, I mean, I think the fact that people are going all, all in on them now, I mean, leads me to believe that it's going to be a it's i mean that they will in fact face some sort of punishment but what that if it but whether it's significant whether it actually affects their lives who knows i mean i i just kind of i'm 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 sort of nonplussed i will say this though i mean the fact that they're saying this stuff when it's not i mean like kevin mccarthy and people have called for his resignation as well but kevin mccarthy was supporting i mean was very supportive of Trump's conspiracy theories about secretly winning the election, despite being which reporter somebody somebody reported today that he said to them specifically several weeks ago that Trump had lost the election and there was the potential for danger resulting from that, even though publicly he wasn't saying that very openly. Um, I don't know. I mean, it kind of seems like 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 Cruz and Hawley might just end up being. Uh, sort of the stocking horses for the whole thing, right? I mean that, like, like if the Republicans, if if Republicans align against those two, 
then can the rest of the Republicans act like they weren't guilty of it? I mean, that might make that they might be attractive targets in that sense, right? Because oh, it's not. So you're saying you're saying, oh, look, see, the rest of us, though, even though we humored Trump for a month and a half plus, mm-hmm. we didn't take that final step of even after their the Capitol was invaded of voting to overturn the election. But yes. those two did, and then we're going to make them into pariahs, and by virtue of that, make us look a little bit better. Well, we can we just skate basically. Right. I mean, that would be I mean, that would be the thought process. There was an article. man. where was it today about why was it in the post about why people? Yes. About uh, how how Republican senators are explaining their years of previous fealty to Trump. Um, It's from on January 8th. And it was a really good piece. But it comes down to basically I think the most convincing argument is that he was a good president for getting the stuff we really care about done conservative judges uh yeah. you know tax breaks like whatever like he and, and a lot of what made trump really effective in you know the things that the republican party quote unquote actually cares about is that he was distracting everybody from that stuff happening right i mean like we never had to we never on the show talked about trump's judicial appointments maybe one time you know like i mean it's 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 uh the the point being that all of the thi- all of the nonsense that trump was doing which which culminated in an act of insurrection uh, was part of the plan, sort of, right? It's like you, like you just go make noise over here while we, you know, cut corporate tax rates. And uh, Cruz and Hawley are certainly more guilty than their than other Republicans in in Congress and in the Senate. But they're if you know they're not the only ones to blame here. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, David, let's do the Overworld Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. You mentioned Simon and Schuster canceling Josh Hawley's book contract. <laughs> well, Hawley was predictably furious at that development. This could not be more Orwellian, he said in a statement. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, actually, George Orwell got his books published. <laughs> Thanks to Andrew Graining for that one. Uh, we did some of the Trump Twitter ban jokes on Friday, but David, there were more. Uh, I saw Trump yelling at the kid with a lawnmower. What's my MySpace password? Uh, another one says, looks like Trump will be moving to Pornhub. <laughs> and, th- and this was nice. Mr. Bezos with the lead pipe in the parlor. <laughs> mm. Thanks to Andrew Brennan, Mark Moore, Matthew J. Moulton, John Spevak, and Andrew Joe Potter for those. And finally, David, did you see the picture of the man walking around the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday, holding Nancy Pelosi's lectern. Well, a man in Florida named Adam Johnson has been arrested and charged with a count of theft of government property. It was an overworked Twitter joke, or maybe just a good Twitter joke to write. His lawyer said at trial he won't be taking the stand. (laughs) Thanks to Socrates Lacrindus. If you found something to amuse us in this horror, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And how about we do something that is not about Donald Trump? Okay, please. 
Don Van Natta Jr. of ESPN has a new edition of his show Backstory out. And it's about the Manti Teo saga. If anyone does not remember this, Manti Teo was a linebacker at Notre Dame who told the world he had a girlfriend who died of leukemia. The story was a tearjerker on ESPN and Sports Illustrated and the New York Times all over the place. And then it turned out Manti Teo's girlfriend did not, in fact, exist. And much to the chagrin of sports media people, Teo, Teo excuse me, was the apparent victim of catfishing. Well, Van Natta reopened the story, and I'm glad he did, because it's not just a mind-blowing story about sports and sex and identity online. It's a story about journalism, and it hits reporters right where it counts. Here's Don Van Natta. All right, Don, let's start in 2012. Manti Teo is a star linebacker at Notre Dame. He goes around to all these media outlets and describes the death of his girlfriend, Lene Kakua. How does he describe that tragedy? Well, it's a dual tragedy for Manti Teo. Uh, his grandmother died on September 12th, his beloved grandmother. He gets that news and then six hours later finds out Lene Kakua, his girlfriend, died. So he was processing two tragedies uh, at the same time. But in his descriptions of Lene Kakua to the media, almost instantly, and also to his teammates, to people in the locker room, his coaches, uh, he described her as the love of his life, somebody who was his soulmate, somebody that he hoped to see someday again in heaven. And so that was the framing of it for the media that Manti Teo was playing through this incredible loss and through this grief, and he told reporters that Lene said to him, if I die of leukemia, I want you to keep playing. Uh, and he did. And that's why the story was so irresistible. He played through that grief uh, and played uh, incredibly well for Notre Dame and led the team to an undefeated regular season. We later find out the girlfriend does not, in fact, exist and that Teo is being catfished. Who was playing the girlfriend? Uh, a California man named Ronaya Tui Asasopo. Uh, who is apparently an acquaintance uh, of Manti Teo. Uh, their families knew each other. And so over a period of several years, Tui Asasopo is catfishing Manti Teo, pretending to be Lene Kakua, imitating a woman's voice on the phone, texting constantly. Um, and Manti Teo, as he tells it to us, has fallen in love with this woman. Uh, and so it was an incredible, incredibly intricate and elaborate hoax that uh, Renaya Tui Asasopo perpetrated on Teo. The question is whether or not Manti Teo, uh, in describing the love of his life, who Lene Kakua is, was, was really being sincere about that when you consider he never set eyes on her. He never met her. Not never met her, never set eyes on her. In fact, Brian, they did Skype calls together and Lene Kakua's image was blacked out even during the Skype calls. So, you know, the more you dig into this, the more sort of preposterous it becomes and you keep thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, how could Manti Teo fall in love with somebody as deeply as he said he did when he never set eyes on her and even in these Skype calls didn't, wasn't even able to take a look at her? There are like three different journalism stories buried in your episode of Backstory. Here's the first one, and this is super easy for us to do here in 2021. But if you had been writing a profile of Manti Teo and doing it on deadline, as many of these people were, would you have checked to see if this girlfriend existed? That's a great question. I don't know whether I would have or not. Uh, you know, you want to take somebody at their word when they tell you to your face, on camera, on the record, uh, this was the love of my life. If I was sitting in the chair of Pete Thamel, the senior writer at Sports Illustrated, who did a lengthy interview with Manti Teo just 12 days after Lene Kakua purportedly died, and Teo is answering those questions, very simple questions like, how did you meet her? And Teo's answer is, well, we just met. Um, she was kind of there. There are so many red flags in that interview, Brian, that if I had been sitting there. Now, I'm not trying to say that I'm a better journalist than Pete. Pete's a, a, a terrific reporter. 
but there were a lot of red flags. Manti Teo didn't know Lene Kakua's major at Stanford. Uh, and a lot of the language he used, there were certainly questions about how deep this relationship was. If I had heard that, I might have been inclined to maybe do a quick Google search, which of course the folks at Deadspin did and my colleagues at ESPN did later. And within an hour found out that Lene Kakua didn't exist. And it's a way it gets around reporters' natural skepticism, because we all have it, even sports writers, about what we're hearing, especially when it's too good to be true. Is it because the story is a feel-good and it's not something that's, you know, if, if we were talking about Manti Teo got kicked out of his high school or had committed a crime, you would go and make sure that's nailed down so you don't get sued and so you don't get it wrong. But did this slip around because it was a nice, quote-unquote, nice story? I think so. I think that it that was part of it, for sure. Um, it was a story that certainly we wanted to believe, right? We kind of bought into it. And Manti Teo is somebody, when he talks, he comes across completely sincere. Um, and the way he described the relationship, despite those red flags, he was easy to believe. And um, so, you know, it wasn't just Pete Thamel. It was my colleagues at ESPN. It was a lot of other journalists, people at the South Bend Tribune, who first reported uh, Lene Kakua's death and, and really got the story rolling. Um, all of us in the media, fell for it. Um, and I think part of it is because of how sincere Manti sounded in these interviews, despite those red flags that I described. And because as you point out, it was a feel good story. It was an inspirational story. This was not an investigative story where we were dubious from the word go. Uh, and it was just, it was a story we all wanted to be true. This was the other thought that occurred to me while I was watching the show is that college football players present a real challenge to profile writers. Because somebody like Manti is really famous, but he's young at this period and he's unformed as a person like we all are in college. And I think it's funny, Don, because if you if you look at college football player profiles, they're basically two kinds. One is the school didn't give me the scholarship offer I wanted and I had to go somewhere else. And now I'm playing with a chip on my shoulder. That's profile number one. And number two is I had this tragedy or challenge in my life. And I think Manti fit into the second bucket. And I think when you are trying to get a 21-year-old kid and explain him to your audience, it's hard, right? And so when he fits into that second bucket, you go, bam, that's it. That's the piece I'm going to tell the world. That's right. Absolutely. And also, there was there were certain words that Manti used in these interviews that um, when you hear them, you you sort of tumble for the story even more. He's all about faith, and he talked uh, frequently about faith. Uh, he's of the Mormon faith. He uh, believes deeply in the fact that even if you can't see something, uh, you can still believe it to be true. And he used that language. And now, as a very cynical journalist now looking back and knowing what we know after Deadspin broke the story in January 2013, I hear that language and I wonder, well, wait a minute, is it possible that Manti, when he was talking about that and talking about faith, was maybe signaling that he had some doubts about whether Lene Kakua actually existed earlier than he ever had let on. And that was one of the things, one of the major questions I tried to investigate in this episode of Backstory. You say in the episode that Teo and the media were partners in this story. How so? Uh, I think it's because um, both the media and Teo uh, wanted the story to be true, sort of checked their our questions that we might have had about it, just the way Teo did as well at the door. And certainly the way Teo described her, and as I said, there were these red flags that were sort of ignored by the media. Uh, the media also um, ignored its own red flags. It wasn't just the language of Teo that was sort of suspicious um, and should have been a signal to us to look more deeply even when we did our own fact-checking, when Sports Illustrated's fact-checkers checked the Pete Thamel story and couldn't find any evidence of a car accident that Lene Kakua had apparently been in in early part of 2012, couldn't confirm that she was a graduate of Stanford and, and other things, they still went with the story. Other media outlets also did some perfunctory checking of facts, couldn't find confirmation of certain things Teo said, and yet still went with the story. So it really was a legend that I think was forged um, equally by the equal partners of Manti and the media. 
Here's journalism story number two within this. ESPN gets a call from Teo's agent, a guy named Tom Condon, super agent to the NFL. And he tells ESPN, hey, this girlfriend that you've been reading about, she does not exist. And I want a place for Manti Teo to tell this story, essentially, and get it out there before the NFL draft where he's going to be a high pick. Why doesn't ESPN wind up publishing that story? Well, the tip came from Tom Condon, a very powerful CAA agent, to Chris Mortensen, uh, my colleague at ESPN, the ESPN NFL insider. And uh, when that tip comes in, as you said, Brian, it is an opportunity for ESPN to have an exclusive interview, a spectacular story, right? This is giving Manti Teo a platform, is the offer that Condon is giving us, to sit down and say, I was fooled. I was catfished. And as we know, first impressions in life are so important. And think about if that had happened before Deadspin had broken it, um, how we would be viewing this. That information comes in and two things happen. Vince Doria, the head of the news division and a vice president at ESPN at the time, and a, and a man who actually helped hire me and recruit me from the New York Times, he gets this information and he begins negotiating with Tom Condon to get Teo in the chair with Jeremy Schapp for this interview. But at the same time, there's a group of investigative reporters who hear this information and they begin doing what Deadspin would, would also do. They start hunting for whether or not Lene Kakua exists or not. And very quickly, they find out that Lene Kakua does not exist, that it was a hoax. And within a day, my colleagues who are investigative reporters at the network produce a story saying that this was a hoax. Doria decides that that story is going to be put on the shelf. He, according to my sources, tells the reporters to stand down and not do any additional reporting while he, on this separate track, is negotiating with Condon to get Manti Teo in the chair. And as we all know, that never happened. Deadspin gets a tip just a day after Condon calls ESPN, and they break the story five days later. And we should note this is old Deadspin. Good, Old good dead, dead spin. spin. <laughs> right. That's right. The reporters <laughs> right. and the reporters are Timothy Burke and Jack Dickey. The editors Tommy Craggs, who all of whom you have on the show. What what do they do? What do they figure out, journalistically speaking, that nobody else does in this story? Well, they get the tip that they get, Brian, which is interesting, is that Manti is a fraud. The tip that they get is that Manti was in on this hoax. He, it was it was he who was hoaxing the world. Um, they see it, though, as a sports media story very early on, um, because what Jack Dickey does, he sets up a spreadsheet and looks at all the coverage of the Manti Teo story from the previous fall and finds all these inconsistencies in all these stories, different dates of when Lene Kakua might have died, all sorts of facts that don't add up. But simultaneous to that, very quickly, they figure out that Lene Kakua doesn't exist. And then, of course, the bigger question is, okay, who's behind Lene Kakua? And through some very smart sleuthing that Tim Burke does on websites, he figures out that the photograph on Lene Kakua's Twitter page actually belongs to a college student in California named Diane O'Meara. He contacts Diane O'Meara through a Facebook friend, and Diane O'Meara says, uh, those 25 photographs that are all out there that are claiming to be Lene Kakua actually are of me. And it just so happens that Diane O'Meara sent one of those photos during the fall, late in the fall of 2012, to a high school classmate of hers named Renaya Tuiasasopo. So that <laughs> is how the deadspin sleuths figure out that Lene Kakua was uh, a figment of the imagination of Renaya Tuiasasopo. And how much of that is these guys just knowing how to do investigative journalism on the internet? versus other people just not being as familiar with that world? I think it was a big part of it. Uh, certainly the Deadspin investigators had a lot of uh, experience investigating hoaxes and scams and frauds. Uh, this was sort of their playpen, right? Their playground. Um, they were very comfortable with that. But I would argue, Brian, that my colleagues at ESPN, some of the best investigative reporters in the country, also could have done that had they been given the chance. And um, they weren't given that opportunity. They very quickly figured out that Lene Kakua was a hoax, but were told to stand down and did stand down, uh, much to their frustration. Uh, and you can imagine how frustrated they were when Deadspin broke the story, uh, knowing that they had to stay on the sidelines. Yeah. And I think what you said a minute ago, Deadspin seeing this as a media story, it, it almost makes them more ravenous for it. 
because, you know, look, it's not just going to be this mind blowing story about Manti Teo. It's going to be a story about SI and it's going to be a story about game day. And it's going to be a story about all these places that put Manti Teo on the air. Yeah. Tim Burke and Jack Dickey said that to me. They were surprised that it took off and was such a worldwide sensation. They initially really did see it as a chance for them to whack around ESPN and Pete Thamel. Their glee was at sort of taking down the sports media that fell head over heels in love with this irresistible story that turned out not to be true. Right. It's the perfect Deadspin story. I think Craig's tells you that Deadspin's MO, if I'm reading through the bleeps in the episode correctly was to fuck shit up. So, you know, that's precisely is- what he says. Yeah. And then he says, that's what he got. And he says, that's what he got into journalism to do. And this was the biggest story Deadspin had ever done in its seven year history. Uh, and, uh, and I would argue maybe the best piece of work they've done in that old Deadspin era, uh, because they turned it around so quickly and they beat everybody in, in the mainstream media and the sports media, uh, and, and it's a story, you know, obviously we're still talking about eight years later. Remind us how big this story was when it broke in January, 2013. It lands on January 16th, uh, 2013, 4 PM. And it goes worldwide instantly. Uh, CNN, the BBC across the world, people are fascinated with this, not seeing it as a sports media story, but seeing it as this incredible human drama and, and and a heartbreaking story, a very sad story uh, of the Heisman Trophy runner-up uh, being catfished, talking for months about the love of his life. And instantly, everyone wanted to know, well, what did Manti know and when did he know it? Because mm-hmm. there was a line in the Deadspin story that said, I am 80% sure he was in on this hoax. Uh, and I think really, Brian, that shaped people's view instantly that, okay, uh, Manti wasn't the victim here. Manti was in on this. And again, if he had been allowed uh, and to sit with Jeremy Schapp and tell the story he wanted to tell, the first impression left by that would have been very, very different from the first impression left by the Deadspin exclusive. So you investigated that idea, whether Teo was involved in the deception. What'd you find? I found no evidence of it uh, and, and looked very deeply into that. There's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of very odd things that uh, I could really never get to the bottom of. Probably the biggest clue that something more is going on here was after the USC game at the end of November 2012, when there was a TMZ video, TMZ sports video of Renaya Tuiasosopo and Manti Teo hugging. Um, again, I think they're acquaintances, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were in cahoots uh, on this. I found no evidence of it, but looked very hard uh, into it. But I also looked into the question of how much Manti Teo might have leaned into the language of this. Uh, Tommy Craggs frames it, I thought, very nicely in the backstory episode when he said there were two hoaxes here, the hoax that was perpetrated on Manti Teo. And then the second hoax, he says, is Teo's language in leaning into the love affair that he describes as being uh, with somebody who's his soulmate, when you really look at the relationship and it looks pretty casual, um, and, uh, and and really, they were really boyfriend and girlfriend, and I'm using air quotes to describe that for only about a year. Uh, again, who are we to doubt somebody's love, of, as I say at the end of the episode, but the language that Manti used repeatedly with the media and with his teammates and with his coaches and, and others um, far exceeded what you'd think it should have been when you really look closely at what the relationship was in real life. After the story breaks, Teo does one on-camera interview, which is with Katie Couric. He, you tried to get him on camera. He talked to you. You interviewed him. You used some of that in this episode, but he didn't want to come on camera and do it again. Does that, do you think, is that part of the reason there are so many unresolved questions about this whole episode? Yeah, for sure. So um, it's not just that Teo did the interview with Katie Couric on camera. He also did an off-camera interview with Jeremy Schapp uh, at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Two and a half hours. It was a very in-depth, wide-ranging interview that Schapp did with Teo, but there were no cameras there. There were very strict ground rules that were set up by the Teo camp for that interview. So it was really just Jeremy coming on SportsCenter late one night saying, I believe what Manti told me, but none of us in the audience could make any judgment until he went on Katie Couric's show, as you said. And then he hadn't done another interview since. I found myself, Brian, in the exact same position that Vince Doria, 
my former boss at ESPN and Jeremy Schapp were in that, again, in trying to get Manti to agree to sit on camera with me. And by the way, he did agree to do the interview. Yeah. I mean, we had four cameras ready to go to Chicago in November to interview Manti. And then he canceled. There were all these ground rules again. Um, he didn't want me to ask him about a quote he gave on a college game day piece back in October 2012 about faith. He answered a question, what does faith mean to you? A very simple question. He gave an answer that I found very interesting that I wanted to ask him about. He told me I couldn't ask him that question and I couldn't even use the clip in the show. So again, I think because it was so carefully stage managed, that tour that Manti did back in January of 2013, and even now in trying to get him to sit for an interview with me, he was still setting up all these ground rules and hurdles to get to the truth, which I couldn't accept as a journalist. I think that's why we still have these lingering, stubborn questions about what the truth is in this case. And you are a zero ground rules guy for an interview like this? I'm a, I'm a mostly zero <laughs> ground rules guy. I don't like ground rules. Most journalists don't. Um, I just felt, Brian, to be honest with you, that this was almost a poison pill that Teo and Matthew Hiltzig were putting into this process. He agreed to do the interview with me. And by the way, we had conversations and I did use some of that in the in the episode. And I felt it was very revealing, some of the things he said, and actually you know, made the audience sympathetic to how clearly this is still affecting him all these years later. And I feel for him from that perspective. But by the same token, he made a commitment to do something and then to suddenly say, I can't ask him a question. He knows I want to ask him about it and can't even use a clip that six million people saw on college game day. He's telling me I can't use a clip in my film. Yeah, that's a ground rule that I was not going to accept. And I think they knew that. And so that's where it ended. I was reminded that this story was so big that when it broke at Grantland, where I was, they convened Chuck Klosterman and Malcolm Gladwell to have an email exchange about the story. I mean, it's like, think about that. Like we do, you know, the, the buzzer was going off and who, who can we get? I know let's get like two of the biggest writers out there to just talk to each other about the story. That's incredible. It was incredible. I I remember that piece. Yeah. It's a really good conversation that those two guys had. It, It was a very smart conversation. Yeah. And, and people couldn't get enough of it. And you know, the media fumbled this badly, right, Brian? And what I found, one of the interesting things is the media really didn't do much self-reflection. As you know, we in the media, we ain't good at that. Like <laughs> when I was at the New York Times, I actually did the story uh, for the New York Times about Judy Miller and the WMD stuff in, mm-hmm. in 2005. Uh, and that was really hard to do because I was writing about my bosses, Bill Keller, the executive editor at the time, and Jill Abramson, the managing editor. And yet again, 15 years later, I had friends of mine teasing me saying, you're again now investigating your bosses sort of at ESPN and the way they handled this. It's it's sensitive. We don't do that. We're not good at it. Um, we should be a lot better at it. Uh, there have been public editors, obviously, of publications that are no longer working as public editors. And we, and you know, you can guess some of the reasoning behind that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of self-reflection. And, and there was not a lot of that in the way the media covered this. And, you know, strikingly, almost everybody who covered this story in the fall of 2012 didn't want to talk to me about it on camera either. I'm talking about the journalists um, who wrote the stories, did the on-camera, you know, TV pieces. None of those folks wanted to talk about it. That's amazing to me because it is understandable, right? It's, it, yeah. it sucks, but it's understandable. We've all made mistakes. I've made mistakes. We have all made mistakes as journalists. It is understandable. And I was hoping one of those reporters would sit and be sort of self-reflective about it. Shelly Smith, my colleague at ESPN, who did a story after Deadspin broke the story, you know, did do a Zoom interview with me last fall and, and said some very interesting things, particularly about the Tommy Condon call that came into the network. Um, but no, I, I, I couldn't persuade any of the other folks to do it. And, and like you said, yeah, it, it's, it is understandable. And it is, and it is a, as Jeremy Schapp said, Jeremy, Jeremy said it really well, I thought. He said, look, I wouldn't have necessarily called the funeral home. I wouldn't have looked for a death certificate. Maybe that means I'm a bad journalist. I don't know whether I would have done it either. As I said, I really don't. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is understandable what happened uh, to the media with this particular story. Before you go, let's spend a few minutes talking about newspapers. For those of us that remember what newspapers are and love them, you get to the Miami Herald in 1987. What is the Herald like 
1987? Oh, the Herald was just a, a amazingly exciting place. It was filled with so much talent, had money to burn. Um, it was a writer's newspaper. Um, and it wanted to, the Herald existed basically to kick ass and to take names. And that's how I came up. Uh, there was a great editor, editor there named Gene Miller. And Gene Miller would run around the newsroom at, at, and just applaud people as you were sitting, banging out your stories on deadline, called everybody champion. That was his nickname <laughs> for you. And the ethos of the newsroom was Gene Miller and his laughter. He would he would laugh. The, the Herald took pride in going after corruption, and there was a ton of it in Miami at the time. Uh, and and, and that, so that was sort of, you know, how, that's really where I learned how to be a journalist and, and was surrounded by great reporters um, who you know, went out and wanted to get the truth and damn the consequences, damn the torpedoes, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, there were no sacred cows and there were so many great stories. Um, you know, you're really only limited by how exhausted you'd be because everywhere you look, there was something going wrong, some corrupt thing, uh, you know, some public official on the take, some judge putting $25,000 in the seat of his pants. I mean, it was just the stories were great and they were everywhere. Can we name some members of the all-star team here? Dave Barry, Gene Weingarten, Edna Buchanan. Who am I leaving out? Edna Buchanan. Yeah, uh, it was fantastic. Um, Jeff Lean, who is now the investigations editor at the Washington Post. I think he's edited six or seven or eight Pulitzer Prize winning packages. Uh, Joel Achenbach, uh, Sidney Friedberg, uh, a, a dynamo reporter. Um, who won a Pulitzer when I was there. There's so many. I'm forgetting Dexter Filkins, who oh, yeah. is now at the New Yorker, the great war correspondent. Uh, he and I were buddies and, and did a lot of work together. There, there's so many. I mean, it was really seen as a as a AAA farm club for the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and so, so many of the people that really kicked butt there, um, you know, moved on to the, the best papers in the country. So to that point, how does young Don Van Natta think? How, how how do you get noticed so that you get the call up to one of those papers? What's what's well, your I plan? got lucky. I got lucky, Brian. I, I was sent to a comfort in motel in Florida City as Hurricane Andrew was barreling down on South Florida. I just I just, you know, really for the luck of the draw, because there were reporters sent all over South Florida. We didn't know where Hurricane Andrew was going to land. And it, the eye of the storm went over the Comfort Inn motel that I was in and tore it apart with 165 mile an hour winds uh, on August 24th, 1992. And I wrote a first person story about it, which got the attention of people in New York and Washington, put me on their radar screen. And then I became an investigative reporter and did some work that also uh, folks up there admired. And then I got the call to go to the New York Times in 1995. How long did it take you to write the hurricane story? I wrote it on a Trash 80 on one of those Texas Instrument uh, yeah. crappy little computers. Um, you know, 90 minutes, 70, 70 to 90 minutes, something like that. Um, it just poured out. I had a, a bunch of little observations written in a notebook and... Uh, uh, I was very fortunate. We had to actually drive the laptop back to one Herald Plaza where my story was sort of taken off of it and put into a special edition. Big headline on the Herald was destruction at dawn. And my, my story was about a comfort in hero, literally a guy who saved our lives, knew that we had to go from one side of the comfort in to the other when the wind shifted as the eye of the hurricane passed over the motel. And I'm convinced uh, that saved our lives. I think only four or five of the rooms were intact uh, when the storm blew out and we were in one of them. So the piece actually had to be harvested in person off the computer. Because the phones yes. didn't work, that's why? Yeah, the phone lines were all down. It had to be harvested off of the computer. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was remarkable. And then for months, we were down in South Dade uh, County, you know, covering the aftermath of the storm. Um, the Herald had a horse trailer that people were sleeping in. It was, uh, it, it was you know, I remember just how hot it was. There was no help for days after... The hurricane blew through there until finally President Bush sent um, the National Guard and some other help and water to people. Um, and yet the Herald was being delivered to houses that were completely devastated by the storm. I still remember, you know, um, my colleagues and I delivering newspapers to people, and they were so grateful to get that newspaper and to get news in their hands. 
uh, of what was happening in their communities. Um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience. You go to the New York Times and then ESPN in 2012. We'll end here. What was attractive for an investigative reporter, writer like you about ESPN? Well, I had been at the Times for 16 years, and I was very fortunate. I covered the impeachment of a president. I covered 9-11. I covered the Florida deadlocked election. I was in London for three years covering counterterrorism issues and traveled around Europe and the Middle East. I was back in Miami uh, as a national correspondent in 2011 doing investigative work, and ESPN called. And I was always a frustrated would-be sports writer, Brian. Um, I'd written two, <laughs> two of my three books were about sports subjects. And so when ESPN called and said, we want you to do sports investigative reporting, um, we're going to give you a lot of resources. You can live out of your house in Miami, travel around the country or even the globe. Uh, it just was a new playing field for me. And um, and I just thought this is going to be a lot of fun. It was time to go and uh, try something new uh, and uh, work some new muscles and, you know, also a chance to maybe be a cross-platform journalist, do some TV and audio and all of those wonderful things. And so I was surprised how quickly I agreed to do it when they called and I went up to Bristol and visited the, the uh, ESPN campus. You can watch Don Van Natta Jr.'s backstory on a bunch of re-airings across ESPN. It's also on ESPN plus the streaming platform. Don, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Thank you, Brian. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. Everyone sent us the Times of India headline this week that said, Ku, C-O-U-P, Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan. That got a big... Round of applause on Twitter. But today's headline comes from Danny Page. It's from IBD Weekly. That is the weekly edition of Investors Business Daily. Investors <laughs> Business Daily Weekly, uh. if you will. The story, David, was about all these big companies moving out of cities. The subhead is remote work in COVID pandemic and Bolden's big name companies to exit high-tax, high-cost locales. So essentially the reasoning is, if there's COVID going on, why are we in New York City? Why are we in San Francisco? Why are we in Los Angeles? Yeah. Your pun word here is big city. Bright big city. lights. Is it bright lights, big city something? Br uh, big city. Mm, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, on the right track. Um, bright lights. Bright lights. Big. Dang. Um, uh tax pretty straightforward here don't don't think too creatively don't think too like just bright lights small town bright lights little little city bright lights uh um big taxes bright we're, we're circling around it bright lights flee big city oh okay that's great remember this is ibd weekly here no i like it i like it i mean it's I a, you know. adjust your expectations accordingly a couple of announcements david there's a good chance you'll be getting an emergency pod in the next few days from us we did four pods last week. We're ready for news from impeachment to resignation to Lindsey Graham getting on TV again. Check out the Press Box pod for updates. We'll also be doing a reaction show next Wednesday after Joe Biden's inauguration, which we desperately hope will be a peaceful event. But while we're covering the news, David, one thing you and I had planned for 2021 is some theme episodes of this podcast. Yeah. We pick like a great nonfiction book or a great movie about the media or just an interesting topic. We go get a big guest and we do something totally different from the normal episode of the press box. Well, guess what? We're going to start this Thursday, January 14th, because this week is the 25th anniversary of the publication of the great book into the wild. And John Krakauer is going to come on the press box. To wow. talk about Into the Wild. Yeah. Now, you probably know the story of Into the Wild. Chris McCandless, 24-year-old college grad, gives away all his money, most of his possessions, and ventures out into the Alaskan wilderness where he lives on a bus for more than three and a half months before dying of starvation. Into the Wild was and is a phenomenon. It sold more than two million copies after its publication. Uh, it has become a movie directed by Sean Penn. It's taught in high schools. There was a study guide, David, I found online where students were told to look for vocabulary words like perambulation 
and Crampon. Wow. The book also has a fascinating backstory. We know this as a John Krakauer story, indelibly linked to him. But when he was reporting the story for a magazine, he was actually competing with Tina Brown's New Yorker, which was reporting its own Chris McCandless story. When he turned in Into the Wild, one editor thought it was completely unpublishable. And since its publication and since the Sean Penn movie, it has become such a phenomenon that fans started making the trek into the Alaskan wilderness to go see the bus Mm -hmm. that Chris McCandless lived on. That has become its own story. The bus was actually moved last year. Anyway, Krakauer talks about all this stuff. So here's what we're going to do Thursday. David and I are going to offer our thoughts on Into the Wild. Then Krakauer is going to come on and get into all these things. If you've read Into the Wild, grab it and flip through it over the next day or two. If you haven't, now's your chance. It's a very quick 200 plus pages. You can read it in one night. He is David Shoemaker, Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. And David, we will see you Thursday, if not before. With John Krakauer and more lukewarm takes about the meeting. See you later, Brian.